I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it is gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. Welcome to the Dune Saga Podcast. Your hosts, David, Scott, and Jim, guide you through the chronological epic story of Dune. Enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the Dune Saga Podcast. I'm David Moulton. And I am Scott Hertzog. And I'm Jim Arrowwood. And on this episode, we're going to be discussing Paul of Dune by Brian Herbert and Kevin J. Anderson. Now, this book takes place between Dune and Dune Messiah, which is a somewhat short period of time, so it's kind of interesting how they pulled out a 500-page book out of this, uh, what is it, like 12 years or something? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, it's it's not a lot of time. Well, you know, and what's interesting is you could arguably say that this book also appears between the House of Corrin and Dune. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Because of their, so kind of it fluctuates between these two time frames, which for me made this an interesting read, different than the other novels. Right. Because we never really, we didn't have this sort of flashback happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, in them rely on this sort of flashback throughout the novels. Well, if you're if you're wondering what we're talking about and didn't have time to read the book, or maybe you read the book a while ago, there will be a Dune in 10 episode for this book out. Uh, when you hear this, it should be live. Um, on the website when this is released. And, now, uh, are you going to do it, or are you going to have that other guy that does it? Do it? <laughs> thug, <laughs> thug guy? <laughs> so, thanks to everyone who sent it in. Uh, uh, but we discovered um, the thug notes for Dune, which is quite humorous. Uh, humorous. I, I, I legitimately thought about writing him and seeing if he would do it for House Carino. <laughs> since, uh, since I don't have to do that. <laughs> Uh, uh, yeah, but so there'll be a Dune intense. So just a brief summary. This book covers two time periods, like Scott said. We've got our time period where Leto was around twelve, I believe, in the in the story somewhere around there. Yep, uh, and it deals with the story of the War of Assassins, which is well, um, not Leto's twelve. Paul is twelve. Uh, Paul is Paul's yeah. twelve. I'm sorry. Yeah, Paul is twelve. That's the big problem I have with the book. <laughs> keeping the two heroes separate because they're so similar. Uh, and then the other, the other part of the book is, uh, dealing with the years after Paul's takeover of the empire and what it was like, uh, being at the head of the jihad and, uh, the empire and all that kind of stuff and trying to maintain his humanity. So a lot of interesting stuff that, uh, that went, went along with this book. Yeah, no doubt. And before we get too far in, just, uh, let you know that there is an app that we have for the podcast. It's called the Zogpod Collective. You can find it on any sort of device that you want to, that you use. It is free 
And it hosts not only Dune Saga podcast, but the Sci-Fi Diner podcast, Haiti and Focus podcast, and the podcasting gear show, all podcasts I'm a part of. But the Dune Saga podcast is there, and you can listen to it straight in your device. You can call in, which some of you did using the Google Voice number that we have there. Called in and left voicemail, and we'll be sharing those on the listener feedback show. It's a great way to star your favorite episodes and to keep track of us and what we're doing. Yeah, as well as uh, some other really cool shows. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I like here in the chat, uh, Crunklord said, uh, this was the Pulp Fiction of the Dune universe. <laughs> so, uh, so just a reminder, we do record live. Uh, if you ever want to join us, you can come to our website at Podcast slash live. Yeah, we're typically reminding people a couple days in advance. Really, if you're part of the Facebook page, it's probably where we advertise it the most. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like but, uh, someone else said, it felt like an episode of Lost. <laughs> <laughs> Yep, we've got a chat room there, and we'll be interacting with them uh, while the show moves forward. So, yeah. So, wow. So, I guess we we should get into this. Let's talk about our overall impressions and thoughts for this book, um, Jim. Why don't you go ahead and you know, in in two words, capsulize this book? I'm just kidding. Two, two words. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Jim. I was wondering why you had that big grin on your yeah. face over there. Yeah, no. Now, Jim, go ahead. Give us your first impressions of this book. All right. Well, really briefly, it's a very busy book. There's a lot going on and a lot to keep track of. Uh, a whole pile of characters going on. I really enjoyed this story. Um, I like the way that it filled in a lot of the blanks and gave us more information on some of the characters that I wondered about that we didn't hear about in Dune, uh, Fenring, Romber, um, more on Shaddam and his family, uh, just all around. I, I, I liked it. Mm-hmm. David, how about yourself? I'll agree. It was a lot busier and it, parts of it, I was, when it started off, I was like, I feel like they're not putting a lot into character development uh, for this book, but I quickly realized that all the character development that we really needed had been in the prelude to Dune series and in Dune. Um, And to an extent, I felt like I might've gotten more out of this book knowing what happens in Dune Messiah, uh, which I felt this is the first book that I felt like uh, really knowing what was coming built the book up more uh, for me. Um, I, I really enjoyed seeing, seeing more of the characters from Prelude to do and kind of what happened to them, like Fenring and uh, his wife. And all this. my biggest disappointment in the book, because everyone was telling us coming in, this is the first, this is the first book in the series so far that I haven't read before that we've gotten to. And I was really disappointed that we didn't learn about the total outcome of Romber. Uh, like, uh, it's, it's kind of hinted at with it. Like, you know, he says he had to, uh, what was it? Like he had to give certain concessions in order to help Leto out in the war of assassins. And I mean, put two and two together. Maybe that's part of why the family's not really in control anymore. Cause there was a little bit of that struggle, but I, I would have liked a little bit more of his side of stuff. I mean, it wasn't really relevant, but at the same time, that's what I was really interested in. Yeah. 
Wow, there were there were some really intense parts to this book. I really enjoyed uh, Paul of Dune. Uh, David, you and I were chatting a little bit beforehand. It it is certainly, in my opinion, one of the weakest of the books that we've read so far. However, that being said, I did enjoy it. But I found myself as I was. Uh, for the first time as I was you know, listening to it on my runs and stuff like that, trying to justify its place in the Dune universe, which I didn't feel like I had to do with the other prelude books and uh, obviously not with Dune, uh, but <laughs> but I didn't have to do this with the, with the other novels. And so that was a little bit interesting for me. Um, what I really liked about it was I felt like it explained the shift in Leto from what we saw in House Carino to what we see in Dune. Like, he's much more of a hardened man when it comes to Dune than we have, you know, in the other. So there was a lot of that shift that it felt like it gave just a little bit of explanation, and I liked that. I liked mm-hmm. it. Overall, I did enjoy the book. It was, yeah. it was a good book. And I, I liked, uh, you know, I liked the War of Assassins. I liked how that played out a little bit. Um... Uh, I think it, I think it kind of sets us up for what Paul does in the next novels a little bit, and I kind of yeah. like that too. I, I agree. I mean, I I think that it's ob- it's a very apparent there wasn't enough for this to just be straight up continuity just from Dune to Dune Messiah, which is why they did the flashbacks. And I think it's because they did that. I know that some of the complaints is it jumps around too much, but I think it's because that they did that that it actually worked, in my opinion. Without that, it wouldn't have been enough to constitute... Neither neither plot lines were enough to constitute a book. Uh, a full, like a full-length book. Like they could, It would have felt too stretched out. Uh, but put them together, and it kind of works. And I liked how uh, the... We'll refer to it as current time, uh, Emperor Moadib's storyline alluded to whatever was going to really happen next in the War of Assassins story. Uh, from time to time, yes, so. yeah, and and they do they do a decent job of tying the two together when they have the big ceremony to kind of and and everything goes to hell in front of Paul there, mm-hmm. you know when he's he's emperor and you find that the one guy who was unable to protect his master back in the War of Assassins now, you know, has got his moment, you know. For the lack of a better term, and you have the advantage of remembering Dune Messiah. I don't. So uh, for me, I don't have any connection to that. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what the whatever what the two of you and even myself have rereading it. Yeah. Thanks, uh, Jim. I'm curious. Was there anything in this book that you were hoping for that didn't show up? I know I, I mentioned like the uh, House of Arneas uh, for me. Uh, not really, uh, but. Uh, adding to what you two guys have said, as I read this, Emperor Paul and young Paul, Paul obviously did not follow the example that was set for him by Leto when he became emperor. Uh, I'm not really sure. I don't know if I can put my finger on it exactly, but Paul's... I was disappointed that Paul seems to be out of touch with what's going on. A lot of stuff, a lot of stuff going on, a lot of killing, a lot of problems surrounding him. And he just doesn't seem to be, if he is aware of it, he does. It doesn't seem to matter to him that much. He regrets all the killing, but he can do something about it. 
He is the emperor of the universe. Everybody worships him. He could say, stop. But he doesn't. He lets it go on, which kind of makes him appear as a as a despot. Yeah. You know, I... I I think for me, as I, as I, as I saw Paul in that role, I said, number, I said two things. First of all, I agree with you, Jim, in that, but I also saw him as a, a man that was really struggling with what it, with what it meant to be a person and how connected he could be or couldn't be to his father. Mm-hmm. That, that struggle really came through it. And and the other side of that is how much did prescience play? Did he see saying that this is this is what this is the way the future needed to unfold for the best possible outcome? And so for him, the the the, the ends, the killing, justified the means. You know, right. the need. You know, to use the Star Trek phrase, you know, the needs of the greater good, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. You know, the so did that did that play into it? I don't know. I don't have an answer yet because I don't see. In the future, like called in, but my prescience week this week. I need more coffee need more for spice, that. Yeah. I need more coffee and spice <laughs> in my coffee. So I, I, you know, I, I took it as as Leto was almost a carbon copy of Paulus. You know what I mean? And, oh yeah. And I think Paul would have been a carbon copy of Leto had this scenario not played out well had the Bene Gesserits didn't get into his life and kind of begin to teach him what he did you know it's ultimately it's Jessica's fault that he ends up kind of this way right 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 but I I, the way that that I read it and I think that we'll learn more in Dune Messiah as well is that humanity was going down a path of stagnation and in order to go out of that there had to be a bunch of bad fighting and death and Leto, or I'm sorry, Paul saw that this was the path with the least death in it, even though he eradicates whole planets. Oh, right. You know what I mean? Still, this is the, this is the le- you know, there's going to be death, but it's the least amount that it's a path with the least amount of it. And also, I think he realizes that his, his followers are so fanatical that if he would say stop, all that would do would be make more trouble that would be less regulated because they would start acting on their own instead of in places that he put them to act. Well, it's kind of the mob mentality, right? Yeah, you know, yeah, you yeah. get a mob going, then no matter what you do, even if you're the one that incited it, you aren't stopping it. Right. It's a so, lot like when Jim has his, uh, his bands out on the football field. Right, right. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can't stop can't, them from can't going. Can't stop them. <laughs> or, or he puts out a blog well, and it just goes viral. You know? yeah. Just, <laughs> yeah. We saw, we saw a, peak of some of that, I guess, with um, Korba, because he was almost becoming a religion of his own. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're kind of going into the characters here, and this is great. Like, let's, Yeah, uh, it just might as well shift right just into shift that. Shift right in. But yeah. my, my big complaint about Korba is that they mentioned, they made too much of a deal about how he was slipping into his own power source. And that he was kind of almost not trustable. Uh, and I, I don't think at this point it's spoilerish to say, but in, that's an, that's an issue that comes up in Dune Messiah. And I felt when I read Dune Messiah that it was kind of a shock to Paul. I think one of them is like, when he says to Korba, like, when did you become this thing? 
And it's, it seems like a question that he's almost asking himself, like, how come I didn't notice? But in this book, it's like almost every time Corba is on screen, you know, somebody's like, oh, Corba is just up for his own power. And it's obvious that he's, you know, he's loyal to Paul, but he also wants to be uh, in charge of his own thing with the Quizzerat. When you saw that, I think especially the conversation that him and Whitmore Blood have over these two different ways of achieving greatness. Uh, you remember that conversation? Mm-hmm. They, it was just one of the conversations that stuck out to me between these guys is they're kind of coming to this truce and we're both here to elevate ourselves. And I think that, that that's where, that's where uh, Corbus's uh, character maybe just shines the most here. But yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think what the other thing was uh, kind of interesting for me was, you know, we talked about the Kuzak Hatterach and we talked about like how the, um, uh, the Tlaxu also had their own yeah. breeding program going on here. Um, but because he had presence, he knew that it wouldn't succeed. It was kind of fun, mm-hmm. kind of interesting way of doing it. And then Fenring's kind of role in that. Yeah, let's talk, let's talk about Fenring. Um, surprisingly featured in the, current tense Paul and not previous tense like you would assume that he would show up more in. Uh, what was your take on his character and where he was in this book? It's interesting that they gave Fenrik uh, 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 such uh, prominence because he's not mentioned in the Dune books except as a cursory mm-hmm. and, and cursory passing and and he's he plays uh, quite a central role in one of the storylines that kind of worked their way through. I guess um I guess in both the the present and the past, I guess he plays a role, and uh, the big focus really is on his daughter, and uh, and what she's kind of um made made to be, I guess, and and uh, there is the result, the end, the catastrophic result, and how um you know that ends the the end scene there when um you know they just sacrifice they they basically you realize at the end that. She's been nothing but a pawn and an, an elaborate plan with many different outcomes and many different contingencies. And she's been nothing more than a scapegoat. It really makes you angry at Fenring for doing this, not only for him, but him and his wife doing this and planning this out. Hmm. Was And I guess I can't remember, was his wife in on it? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah so mm-hmm. It was yeah. a oh, yeah. plan, plan between the both of them. I, I seriously think the Fenrings thought that what they had planned would be successful. I, I, I don't see I don't see little Marie as much a pawn as she was a you know their hope for taking taking uh, taking over the the universe away from Paul. I don't think they expected her to fail because if you recall when they sent her into the pit with the with the soldiers with the other assassins and shut the lights off and the assassins had live weapons and she dispatched 15 of them in a matter of minutes and they decided okay now she's ready to take on this task that that we have uh set for her mm. yeah i think that like originally they saw her as a as a pawn i mean i, I through it all i still think they saw her as their hope and and their daughter and they loved her. It wasn't like she was just just upon, but mm-hmm. I got the impression that through her interactions with um, Thalo, 
that she was almost using her parents as much as they were using her. Like she saw the path of power ahead of her. Not that she was crazy power hungry or anything, but at one point it sells as something like you, we won't be used anymore or whatever. And she's like, she says like, what makes you think I'd let myself be used? Right. Right. You know, she's, so she's, she's aware of so, what's going on. So in one part, because of her age, you want to kind of feel bad for her. But the other part, she's very much a part of this entire plot and, and is aware it's going on. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. I think oh, it's, yeah. it's interesting how, Paul couldn't see her in his visions. Yeah, and also, but but Paul had trouble seeing Fenring in his visions, right? Right. So I mean, it's like it's you want to know if there's something more to that. Yeah, I wondered. Is the well, what, go ahead, Jim? Well, does does Paul actually see small details during his visions? Because my impression is that. That when he has his visions, it's usually a big picture. Yeah, I think I think it depends. Like generally, I think it's like you said, like it's it's a big picture. But I think he can kind of see small paths in front of him. Uh, but when he sees the, and, but, well, the small and, path, he can't see the big path. And yeah. not only that, it seems that his visions don't usually involve him personally, but involve other situations. Now I could be way off base, but that that's kind of my impression. I think sometimes the visions that surround him are a bit murky. Like he knows that there's danger around him and is aware of it, but doesn't necessarily know how it's going to relate. Like, and then he probably the biggest vision that he sees is his, um, uh, who's the guy that kind of rose up against him. Uh, Thorvald. So it's so, so Thorvald, right? Uh, and they see his yeah. potential attack and he, calls out the guild for helping mm-hmm. and then the guild turns around and helps him, you know, take care of Thorold. And, and, you know, that's a, uh, um, so in, in that way, he has something very specific, so specific that he's naming and identifying and describing minute details in the ships so that he can prove or he's able to prove his vision. But I don't think that most of his visions play out that way. And I think the book kind of indicates that. Mm-hmm. Well, another, another thing that puzzles me, about this is when he does when when he has the the truth sense and he is right there with Fenring they're going down to the the wine cellar together and he does not sense at all what's going on with Fenring now does he, does Fenring have the ability to block the truth sense or you know what's going on there he is a master of uh, he is a master of disguise and deceit, no doubt of that. And maybe that plays into the fact that Paul's true sense is linked into his Ben Jesuit ability or or his prescience, and he's unable to see Fenrig in the prescience. And you might be able to argue that this is just a carryover from that. Yeah, well, he does sense a lie. He's not one hundred percent sure why. Right, and it was just in the in the having not found anything under, which we find out later that he. You know, he did know about the caves under the right, keep. right. So we you know what's interesting mm-hmm. here is, um, as readers, we know a lot about Henry. Paul doesn't have that luxury, so when he's mm-hmm. sitting there having a meal with him there at the very end, you're like kind of screaming at Paul to keep his eyes open, and he's not. 
you know, because, but we have that luxury of being the reader and seeing everything that's happened behind the scene that he doesn't. You know, there was a small part of me that was kind of hoping for the team up at the end. I mean, I knew it wasn't going to happen, but I thought. You mean between Fenric and him? Yeah, because I don't think that we hear about Fenring and, and Dune Messiah or ever again. Uh, to my knowledge, I can't. I'm not 100 percent sure on that. But um, if if you know in the chat room, chime in, chime in. Uh, but I thought, you know, we have Winds of Dune coming up in a couple books, and I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if they did team up and like he was out on assignment, and then it enters in in the Winds of Dune kind of stuff. But I don't know. I mean, I guess it was kind of inevitable the the betrayal. Like it wouldn't have worked. Yeah. Too super. I don't know. I I. I thought it was good justice when Paul sentenced him to go live with Shaddam on Salusa. Oh, yeah. 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 yeah no, no, absolutely. Absolutely. No doubt. Well, let's, let's talk about uh, Shaddam's change here. Uh, here's a guy who will not concede that he's lost. Oh, no. At all. And he's completely blind to anything that gets in his way. Uh, you know, even his son-in-law. He's not useful anymore. Boom. Yeah, him. that was kind of that was kind of brutal. My thoughts on that, I was like, this guy doesn't have like a whole lot of people on his side. Like, why would he just kill them willy nilly? But yeah, well, he was embezzling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's that. You know, that small thing. You're embezzling yeah. family. You know, <laughs> you know, art and yeah. I understand that. I would have thought I would have thought he would have liked his cunning and yeah. seen that he could use the tool there. Yeah. How about sending his youngest daughter? Oh yeah. You know, to the uh, palace and having her Rookie. Yeah. And she was described as not being too sharp, and that was a cold slap in the face to Paul right there. Oh yes. Yeah, absolutely. Ah. <sighs> Well, that, you know, I want to. That brings up. We, we we should talk about Irulian, right? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, so she is the propaganda machine, the biographer for Paul in this book, and you saw that. You saw evidence of this, obviously, in Dune, and now in Paula Dune, you see her manifest this mm -hmm. skill, and she is the propaganda machine, painting the version and vision of Paul that she has. And it's not a hundred percent truth, right? I I think <laughs> it's kind of funny. I looked, I read, reading this book, I thought this should have been called Irulan of of Dune. It's almost her story more than anything else. It is because uh, she's the one telling. She, in a sense, she's the one telling the story of twelve year old the War of Assassins. Right, right. I, well, I don't. That's something I was trying to think about. I was like, obviously, the quotes at the beginning of the chapters by her are written out of her exaggerated uh, books, but is what we're reading her recollection or are we actually reading the events? Cause I felt like the thing, there's a big long thing at the beginning of all the war of assassins chapters. There was like a, like a real long quote before each section. And I thought that was her, a segment of her writing for this, and then we were supposed to read how it really went in in the book, but I don't know. Yeah, I, I, it's interesting, Jim. Any thoughts on this? Yeah, I I think that we are reading the events because nobody seems to be superhuman uh, 
during during the narrative. Mm-hmm. But it is Irulan's job to make Paul bigger than life, to keep the myth going, and uh, in order to keep the troops rallied. I don't think she likes that. You don't think? I thought th- I got the intention that she embraced that responsibility. Well, she likes being the chronicler because there is no other place for her. You know, she's obviously she's not going to um, have an heir. She is, you know, she is just there because Paul married her as a convenient step to the throne. So her her responsibility is to chronicle the, the events in the life of Paul. And I get the impression in several places in the book, I, I wish I could be more specific, but that she is being, full, well, she knows that if she does not exaggerate and do this the right way, that her work is going to be rejected. Hmm. See, I thought it was if she, if she exaggerated too much, her work would get rejected. She, I, I took it. Well, as if her, she exaggerated, if she was, exaggerated the negative stuff, she would get rejected for sure. Well, yeah, right. But by the end of the book, she totally accepts that role. And yeah, she, she's embraced she, the role biographer, and, and she's dealing with dealing with the uh, struggling with whether or not she's in love with Paul. Yeah. Yeah, I, I well, if say, we go ahead. If we also recall in previous installments, though, she's written several chronicles, and one of those is in my father's house, mm-hmm. which she paints. She paints life on Kaitane uh, a lot better than it appeared in the narrative of the, of the books. That's right. true. Right. Right. Um, you know, uh, Roland chimed in and said he doesn't think that he didn't interpret it, uh, the pre-Dune stuff as being written by Erlon, just to quote. So he doesn't weigh in on that. Um, but Ryan just chimed in and said that her his her writing becomes even a bigger deal and wins a Dune, which we didn't read yet, mm-hmm. where uh, Leah is telling her how to write a certain way because of how she wants Paul remembered. Mm-hmm. So that becomes even a bigger deal. So when do we hit wins in Dune? Winds of Dune is after Dune Messiah. Okay. All right. Yeah. So we're two but books away. We're two books away. We're a couple books away. And a movie. Aren't we doing a miniseries? Yeah, miniseries next month. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> let's uh, comments on Thorvald. I liked that we didn't really know much about him. Yeah, Mystery Man. I think that that made the story better to me because no, no, there's really no real threat to Paul. At this point, I mean, because we, we know Dune Messiah, he's fine. Right. So. Yeah, I guess, uh, let, let me let me play devil's advocate here. I mean, we know there's not a real threat to Paul and really not a threat to any of the houses, even coming up through the prequels. And yet the, the houses are threatened and they're put in jeopardy. We kind of buy, depending, depending on how well it's written, we buy that jeopardy. We, we Even though we know the outcome, we buy into it and we say, Oh, they could be in danger and then they get out of it, right? And so I, you know, I think they could have pushed Thorvald out. They could have made us care about him because how many characters that we've cared about in Dune where they, you know, axed them off and, you know, they've been done. Uh, so we could have been 
uh, given a little much to care. I mean, there's certainly justification from Thorvald to be rising against Paul because of what's going, what Paul is doing and the atrocities that's, that he's committing. Um, and it would be great to see him painted as kind of uh, this uh, vigilante for justice and, and, and him rising up to take a stand for what's noble and right and just and see him thwarted, you know, you know, tragically. Yeah. You know, in space when he's dumped by the guild highliners. But, you know, we don't, we, when, when that happens, you don't have a lot of empathy for him because he's just, you're seeing it just through Paul's eyes. You're hearing it just through, um, uh, you're hearing it just through the, uh, the eyes of, well, I guess, you know, through the eyes of Paul and his advisors. Yeah. For, for me, I, I liked the fact that it showed, some of the reason for the jihad, which is better than just saying, you know, we just sent the people out to the planets to, to take over every planet that said, no, there's like, it's not just people saying no, it's like a group of people fighting back rebel Alliance. I mean, princess Leia's out there, uh, Han and Luke. Yeah. He's a gadfly. He's what? He's a gadfly. A mosquito. (laughs) (laughs) He, he, yeah, he doesn't really matter, and uh, you know, especially when Paul controls the spice, and uh, I, I, I have this guilty feeling about being happy about them getting stranded out on the edge of the galaxy and <laughs> and just left behind. Hmm. hmm. Yeah, I liked that though. I thought that was. I mean, I, I too felt guilty about it. I felt sorry for them, but I was like, man, Paul's like, he's hardening just like Leto did and not taking it. Well, you, you know, and he's using his resources, Paul is, you know, you do this or I'm cutting the spice off. Yeah. And of course, the guild's going to go, okay. <laughs> right. They're going to roll over with their bellies wide open. You know, here's the thing. Here's the other thing that I'm thinking of, you know, Paul in this book is really struggling with who he's becoming. And you see the basis for the little that I remember from Children of Dune. You see the basis for where he's headed. And uh, because, okay, hopefully I'm not spoiling anything right now, but doesn't he kind of reject his role as emperor at one point? Mm -hmm. And, I mean, you see him kind of, you know, at the beginnings of wrestling with this. Mm-hmm. In this book, and I think it does a decent job to kind of set us up, right? So, yeah, I agree. Well, there's one more person uh, I want to talk about during the Emperor Moadib period, and then I'll hand things over for Jim to cover uh, the Young Paul period, some of the characters there. But let's talk about uh, Alia, some of the developments in her character. Um, she's She's still pretty creepy at this point to me. Oh, yeah. Very creepy. You mean a scorpion queen? <laughs> yeah. I I did like how we saw how she got the nickname Alia of the Knife. Um, mm. I thought that was cool. Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But And you kind of got to see how, you know, a little bit about more about how her childhood is kind of demented and, and weird and stuff like that. But... Uh, any other thoughts on Alia? Well, you know, I, I, the, the relationship she has with, um, who is it, Margot? Who, who's, who's the young girl? 
Fenwick. Uh, Marie. And Marie. So the, that relationship was kind of cool to see them in that relationship, even though it obviously turned tragic. But when they like sneak off and go out to the sand dunes, it's all kind of cool. And they're like fishing for sand trout. You know, it's, it's kind of this, uh, cool thing to kind of see her in that role. And made her, it humanized her, made her seem very young like, which she obviously is. is. But, yeah. but you see this other side of her, which is obviously speaking on behalf of her brother, making decisions for her brother. And I love that whole gambling. Do you remember that gambling scene where, yeah. like, like, she, she gambles with a guy and totally busts him and, you know, and I like and, that it's, it's acknowledged that she has some prescient abilities. Yeah. Limited, mm-hmm. but they're there. Yeah, so she is uh, the uh, Aaliyah the knife or the Spider Queen? Oh, wait, so, <laughs> Scorpion Queen. Scorpion. Yeah. So. The next movie coming from the Rock. Yeah, <laughs> Scorpion Queen. The Scorpion Queen, a Dune, <laughs> a Dune movie. <laughs> the closest we're gonna get. Oh man. Well, let's. Why don't we jump in and talk a little bit about Paul Dune? We probably don't want to spend too much time in this because we'll, we'll be running long if we do. But, uh, Jim, do you want us to lead us in this? Uh, Anything stand sure. out? Any of the characters stand out in Young Paul? With the with the Young Paul story, I'll tell you what. What a nut job this Moritani guy is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Let me tell you, he, he just absolutely was going off on everybody. It didn't matter who he went over, and his ultimate goal was very simply to kill Shaddam. That that's all there was to it. Yeah, yeah. He was going was to continue to escalate everything until he got Shaddam there, and then blow the place apart. Yeah, and you saw that. You saw. I mean, what was neat, I guess, about that conflict for me is you you have a tie into the prequel books again and uh, the prelude books, and you see, you know, this this uh, especially the house books how they tie into this event. Um, the blood, you know, from, uh, you know, um, well, who, who is it? The, it's the Mortani and the, the Grumman, right? Yeah. You see how they come of, they're still, they're still at it and how each of them are being very vindictive in their ways. But there is a larger thing going on with Mortani that I think is very interesting, which is what you just mentioned. Yeah. I, I agree. I like, I like seeing the Harkonnens back in the action too. It was a mixed exception because as soon as they started talking about the Baron, I was like, yeah, are we done with the Baron yet? <laughs> like, seriously. But then I liked the fact that he was very backseated, mm-hmm. and it wasn't all about him and his people. It was very much like, uh, so we got the feel that, and how Leto knows that he was involved, even though he wasn't directly involved. I thought that was cool. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it, what this does for me with, uh, with the Baron is it brings in to focus a hint of the relationship that the Baron and Shaddam have in the plot to Ortho Leto. They, yeah. They're kind of set up that relationship. At least I felt they did. That they set up that relationship yeah. so that when Dune happens, this makes sense. What was really interesting was how easily Moritani manipulated the Baron into a position he did not want to be in. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. 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 And you don't. I would have expected. Yeah, I would have expected a lot more from from the Baron of not getting trapped like he got trapped. Yeah, 
Yeah, it definitely was an uncharacteristic. You don't ever in the books ever see the Baron in that sort of position, except here. Right. Maybe a little bit mm-hmm. in the hole when he owed gold to the one house. And they remember when they threw that one guy into the sewer pit. And oh, he, drowned, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he owed a lot of money that yeah. he ended up paying. So he, he it's not the first time he's gotten himself into 60 situations, but it's the first time where you saw him so easily manipulated. Right. I think. So. Right. Yeah. And he had no way out. You know, all Moritani would have had to do was tell uh, Shaddam the Baron's involved, and that would have been da- the downfall of KD Prime right there. Yeah. 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 R- Ryan White in chat room said, we aren't even done with the Baron yet. So. Yeah. yeah so, that's true. Yeah. So he knows more than I do. <laughs> so, is that in the wind book? <laughs> now you aren't gonna tell me. No. Oh, your mom, your mom. You're gonna, you're gonna keep us silent. Let's go outside, David. I'll take uh, you on. No, he's gonna poison my coffee. Yeah, <laughs> I've got my Chris knife. Let's go, buddy. Let's go. Children, throw of down. Doom. Children of Doom. No, okay. Children. Of oh, you do see it in children. Oh, that's right. You do. Yeah. yeah. Um. Uh. Who else here? Uh, Romber. It was great to see Romber back in the action. I always liked Romber as a character. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. Not mm-hmm. enough of him, but I liked. I liked that you got the tension of. His family losing power of X. Yeah, I love when he arrives on the planet just as like the battles ensuing. Like he arrives as help, and then the emperor's right in his heels. I just just (laughs) assumed all those people were the emperor. Right, right. But nope, Nope, it's Romber. And you're like, yes, (laughs) bring it. (laughs) Just lay it down. But like the cavalry coming over the hill. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. Well, let's and not- then followed immediately by Shaddam for crying. Yeah, I know. <laughs> stop to the whole party. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing like uh, stopping a good war when you're about to have one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Darn it. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, let's uh, let's hit um, – we've talked a lot about the characters. Let's move in to talk a little bit about some of your favorite moments in the plot. We won't dwell long here because we're running uh, – we're about at 42 minutes here, and we have some other things to get through. Um, but let's talk a little bit about favorite points that we have in the plot. David, uh, give me one moment that stuck out to you that was like a favorite moment of yours. Uh, a favorite moment for me, probably um, the part, portion with blood where he betrays everybody. I think to, because to me – you mean with the hunter seekers coming out and uh, like everyone there? In the whole book, to me, that was the biggest mystery. Who did it? Mm. Who did it? And then, of yeah. course, once they started to kind of hint that it might be blood, I was like, oh, well, yeah, no, it makes sense. Yeah, it does. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what, what I liked about that, like how well thought out and how well known, how, how much he knew who he was attacking. It was like the War of Assassins continued. It was a link between the two for me. And, like, the fact that every single Hunter Seeker had a different poison. Maybe not every single one, but a lot of them had different poisons, which made – because he knew that Paul could chemically change the balance of what was inside of him. And, therefore, he would be working overtime to do this. Right. But I was surprised that he put so many people's lives on the line. I would have thought – he wouldn't need to do that to really achieve what he wanted, but yeah, uh, he wanted to like go Mar- out big. He, yeah, he wanted to no, go he, out huge. 
He knew he was going to die. He he expected to die. Right. But he thought that he'd be infamous and therefore remembered yeah. in that way. You know, uh, I just wanted to jump back. Uh, we were talking about the war that got stopped by the emperor. And he, someone said it's like the end of Monty Python, the Holy Grail. Just over. Yeah, just over. Like, just like, okay, there you go. Well, it's, it's, yeah, <laughs> great comparison. So thanks, Ryan, for pointing that out. But <laughs> I like that. <laughs> that is, it is. It is. Um, um, Jim, how about for you? A, a favorite point in the plot for you that you really enjoy? The the single moment that that really stood out to me was when Duncan and Paul were uh, escaping from the. Uh, why did I want to say Sisters of the Poor? Sisters of Isolation. Um, and they were escaping, and if I'm saying his name right, Guiri? Yeah. Gore? Guiri, yeah. Okay. Gori, okay. Who, uh, who was held responsible for the death of Victor, sacrificed himself to make sure that Paul and Duncan got away. He didn't think anything about his own life. He just charged in there and went after those guys and allowed them to get away. And you know he didn't survive. Yeah. Yeah. And at the same time, Helena got her comeuppance. Well, you know, he got, he got a chance to redeem himself slightly. And uh, yes. we, we, we removed the whole dead end of Helena. So. Hmm. I think for me, one of the points, one of the plot points that really stuck out to me was the um, uh, when when Leto goes to marry that girl, and I'm like, you know, by by now I've been so entranced with Jessica, and I thought, haven't we visited this? Didn't we visit this like 20 years ago, where he had the same sort of opportunity with a different, you know, daughter of the same guy, yeah. and, and and so I'm a bit. Miffed. And so I understood. I like that we got that viewed through the eyes of Paul and a little bit of Jessica in there. Um, and so I was mixed. The, the scene, I mean, we got the typical, you know, Kevin G. Anderson and Brian Herbert writing here when they described the wedding scene and, and, and how, you know, you know, the arm being taken off and blood splattering out of your wear and the lady's throat being, you know, cut open and the gruesomeness of it. You got that. And I was like, I was, I remember I was, I was over the mountains when I was having, I was running and I was like, Oh, Oh no. And I, you know, I can't turn it off. I'm listening to it. I'm running, but it was just kind of this. And not that I wanted to, but it's just kind of this, a scene. It just really stuck out to me as being, you're kind of happy that it happens because then you can't marry, but you know that you can't marry because Jessica's the only one in Dune. So. Yeah. Yeah. I did like seeing the tension between the two, though, and how yes. she was like in Dune. You kind of get the idea that she's like, well, you know, he he could have married someone else, but you see that when that came up, she wasn't really as easygoing about it as she right seemed. Right. Well, you know, it shows the humanity. Question not that removes. So. Shoot. Question, guys. What do you think it would have would have taken place? Would it have changed Paul's position? Had uh, they married because I'll tell you what, Leto seemed awful enamored with that little girl. Mm-hmm. With a little girl, um, Alessa. Yeah. Oh, well, you, you, oh, you, if they, if if uh, Alyssa and, and him had had a a son, you mean right? Yes. I don't. Do know. you think? Do you I, think I Paul's Paul position being after being back. declared? On 
to be the heir. His declaration of uh, Do you think heir. that would have changed? But at the same time, it would have opened up for assassination attempts. Well, uh, at least, Elisa didn't really strike me as that type of person. I, I, I don't know. Hard to say. I think it would have definitely changed his relationship with Jessica uh, substantially. Probably even destroyed it. Yeah. Oh, she she was she was a, a really upset at first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 But I think those two were actually becoming closer as time went on. Yeah, like she seemed to accept it as, as like right before her death. But mm-hmm. I, it would have been interesting because we saw what happened with Kylia. She, Jessica, was okay in that situation. And Kylia was the one that had an issue, but mm-hmm. it's difficult to say how she would have handled it. I mean, she she was older, and she had a son now, so it wasn't just like a you know a purely physical thing anymore. Yeah. What do you think yeah. about uh, we we didn't touch on in this event? What do you think about when uh, Duncan and Paul go traipsing through the jungle? I thought it was a good story. I, I liked it. I mean. I was, I, you know what I was waiting for? I was waiting for a, a contradiction that never came. I was waiting for Paul to kill someone because they make such a big deal about how he had never killed when he kills Jameis. Mm. I was waiting for that to, mm-hmm. to happen, but it didn't. So we're fine. Yeah, we're fine. We're definitely fine. Yeah. Well, uh, should we move on here? Yeah. Uh, any other, any other spots we're missing? I mean, there's a lot we can talk about in this book, but uh, do you want to talk about themes? Uh, let's move on to, to favorite quotes and. And move on from there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, by the way, okay. just as a side note, before we get into favorite quotes, I like that Ryan, uh, oh, Roland is, showed us that the Mythgard Institute at mythgard.org has a Dune course. So you can study Dune in depth. Yeah. That course is free too. Yeah. It's free. So uh, you can subscribe on iTunes U for it. And, uh, I'm, so, ho- I'm hoping to follow along with that one. Are you? Yeah. yeah. So I didn't. That was. I was kind of cool. When? What time does it start? What week? Uh, it's coming up in August. July 30th. Oh, oh so it's so here. Next week. Next week. Get your classes if you're looking for some heavy reading. But I think you can listen to it whenever because it's yeah. seen like, like a podcast. I think that'll be cool. Okay, favorite quotes. Let's go there. Uh, Jim, All go right. Ahead. Yeah, hey, David. What What did you come up with this time? Okay. Um, I got a couple here. You're noted. I said, uh, this is from the Assassin's Handbook. It says, weapons come in an infinite variety of shapes and designs. Some look exactly like people. And I was like, man, that is like, sums up the Dune books in general there, you know? Cause it's like, uh, every time you turn around, there's a new type of human weapon that's, uh, to be under, whether it's Fenring or Paul or Marie, uh, potentially Thalo. So. Uh, the first part of this I thought was really interesting and relevant in general. Uh, this is from A Child's History of Moadib by Princess Irulan. If a soldier dies on a battlefield and no one remembers his name, was his service for naught? Moadib's faithful know better than this, for in his heart he honors the sacrifice they make for him. And like this is part of her inflation of, of his being. Yeah, he struggles with the guilt of all these lives, but it's not down to the individual person. You know, how could he know all the names of all the people who, who die? Uh, so I like that one. Uh, let's see, I'll do one more. 
picking out of these two. Which is more honorable? To follow a monster whom you have sworn loyalty or to break your oath and leave his service? Joel Norette, the first swordmaster, said that. Joel Norette, yeah, so we have a throwback to that. Really big throwback. <laughs> that that was uh, mm-hmm. I mean, that was a good one, good one for me. Uh, I think that it, in in some ways it kind of spelt out what was going to happen with uh, Reeser, but I still thought it was cool. So those are mine. <laughs> Okay. And Scott, what did you come up with? Well, uh, yeah, um, I, I shirked in my homework a little bit. I, I don't have any quotes here tonight. What? I know. See, so maybe I better not take that university course, but, um, uh, you know, I, there were a lot of good quotes. A lot of the, um, I mean, like in any of the other prequel books, uh, the quotes play an integral part in telling the story, whether it's showing the inflated, um, the inflated, uh, the way Erlon's inflating the story, uh, between what actually happens. Um, but you're getting a lot of that. I don't have, there were some good quotes in here. I don't, I, I want, let me jump my notes here, see if I actually did jot any down. I did not look at any right along. Here. Well, while Scott's doing that, I want to point out Ryan White said in the, in the uh, chat room, he said, uh, this is referring to the scenes of, uh, uh, Paul and Duncan in the woods. He said, Welcome to the Jungle was playing in the back of my mind during that part. I thought too that he would narrowly avoid killing someone. Yeah, I, I was I was expecting uh, Paul to kill someone and then be like, "Well, let's let's not tell Jessica that you, we don't want your mother to know about this." But hmm. anyway, yeah, I know I I don't have any quotes. So, but that's just, just my thoughts on this. So, Jim, you can go ahead, and I will uh, <laughs> sheepishly be. Um, Chased out into the sand and be left for a sandworm. Leave punishment ideas for Scott in the comments. Yes, yes, yes. yes. In, in, in the chat, in the chat room, comes come up with creative ways for Scott to die. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess my quotes are um, one is from the text itself, and this is Chani. She aggravated me in this book. She sounded like a Moadib cheerleader. Uh, even though he is the emperor, Moadib is one of the people. And obviously he wasn't one of the people. He was quite out of touch with the people as far as I'm concerned. So she was really, really out of touch. I'm not sure what her role is going to be in the future. Huh? Well, I mean, I kind of know what it is, but it's a little bit more dynamic. We'll see what happens. Yeah. yeah. Any okay. other quotes? Yeah, I got I got two more. Um, this one is from Mother Superior Raquela, and these are more something that would be relevant to things that are happening today. Humans have a tendency to complain whenever the old must give way to the new. But change is the natural way of the universe, and we must learn to embrace it rather than fear it. The very process of transformation and adaptation strengthens the species. Hmm. And then my third and final quote, It is easier to judge an alien culture than to understand it. We tend to look at things through the filters of our own racial and cultural biases. We are capable of reaching out, or excuse me, are we capable of reaching out 
And if we do, are we capable of comprehension? And that is uh, from a Bene Gesserit report on galactic settlements. That is an awesome quote, by the way. I love that quote. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You can use it if you'd like, Scott. Oh, good. Just my quote. Actually, what I will share have, is what. Go ahead. Just have David edit out me, and then you go ahead and read it in and edit it. In. <laughs> uh, what I will do is I will read uh, Roland Smoker in the chat room. Uh, put a good quote. He said. He said this. He said, "Those who seek fame and glory are the least qualified to possess it." And this is by Renvar, the magnificent, a jongleur artiste, rumored to be a face dancer. So. Yeah. So I thought that that was a good quote as well. We're going to see a little bit more face dancers coming up. Ooh, are you te- are you teasing us? A, You're teasing tease. us here. Well, let's let's move on to our final thoughts. Rating this book, Jim. How would you rate this book? I'm going to give it a four. Um, I think it was it was good, salt, good and solid. A couple of really good stories, but it was really really busy. And yeah. and it, uh, I had a tough time following at times. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I put the book down and then come back to it later, it took me oh several minutes to go. Oh yeah, now I remember what's happening. So yeah, hmm. I had that problem too when I would when I would pick it up and I'd be like, oh, wait, later, Paul, later, Paul. Like they're so interchangeable at this point. It would take till they referenced yeah. one of another for me to be like, oh, yeah, wait, that's who I'm reading about. So, Scott, yeah. how about you? How would you rate this book? Um, 3.35. Oh. Um, no, no, I just, you know, it was a good book. It just, uh, when I when I look at what I've rated the others yeah. and, and how I rate this one, it's, it just doesn't hold, I, again, like I said earlier at the beginning of the show, like I found myself when I was running trying to justify its place in the Dune universe. Now, I don't have the luxury of knowing how it fits into the other novels, passing it, but for me, reading it and understanding it as I do, I thought, this is a good book, but it just isn't quite as solid as some of the other stuff that we've read. And, uh, uh, I mean, I like the characters, like the visit. I don't have any, like, got all the complaints about it. It just as a cohesive body of work, just didn't feel quite as nice and clean yeah. for me. Yeah. Do you do you think, Scott, maybe you felt like it was maybe too standalone? Because this book, to me, was kind of a standalone book. If I well, didn't it, read any other Dune, it was it was a good book. Yeah, maybe. Maybe it felt it maybe it felt standalone. I think the other the other part that was a bit odd again was the time jumping. You're you're in one like Everything we've read has been fairly linear. I mean, you start at the beginning and time progresses. Sometimes time jumps, you know, 65 years. Um, but mm-hmm. it, 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 you're jumping back and forth, you know, you know, after the events of Dune, pre-events of Dune. It's like we're skirting around to kind of bookend this novel a little bit. Uh, you know, Frank Herbert's masterpiece. We're trying to uh, bookend it and it just – I don't know. It just, I think some of that bothered me. I mean, I enjoyed going back and seeing, you know, Leto alive again and, and, you know, the Baron and, you know, the Emperor doing their thing. Uh, but, but I also mm-hmm. was like looking after Dune, since that's kind of where the book is kind of placed. I was like looking for a continuation of the story of Paul. And so I loved each of those respectively. I almost wished they would have come out as novellas. 
Yeah. And, you know, a novella, pre, you know, pre-Dune novella, and now this little novella that comes out after called Paul Dune or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. All right. Now, I'm torn because my gut feeling when I close the book, and that's the rating I'm going to give it, uh, feels like it's too high. But I don't know if that's because this is the first new Dune book I've read in a decade. You know, well, not, not in a decade, but it's been a long time. It's been... You know, all the books we've read so far, I've I've had experience with. So when I've read them, I I feel like I've had a a more fair rating system than the initial. Um, makes me it makes me think I should give it a lower one because it is the weakest one we've read so far. But I really enjoyed it. I read this book in a week. Oh, it was good. So I'm going to give it a four out of five. Oh man, I'm I, I, I'm the one that's a naysayer here. But the thing is, if I read it again, I probably like if if this has been my second read, I'd probably be like, yeah. And and I think that we might find. For Dune Messiah, I'll probably have a lower rating for that because I remember reading that and kind of feeling like I read it so quickly and it was kind of, it was good, but at the same time I was like, I don't feel like this is like as good as the other books. So hmm. we'll see how that, uh, that works out. Uh, it works out in the end. Um, well, now next month we're reviewing the Dune miniseries. Yes. From Simon. Mm-hmm. Um so So we're uh, kind of rehashing the Dune book again. Rehashing the Dune book again. Uh one more time. And let's just we talked a little bit about what we expected from that when we talked about David Lynch's Dune. So let's talk about what we're expecting from Dune Messiah. We'll skip ahead for So we're skipping ahead. Well, if you're just looking for the books, I mean I mean, that's the give me your impressions of both. How about that? Okay, so let me talk about um, – I've seen the miniseries once, twice maybe, and I've enjoyed it. I uh, They just are, in my opinion, much more solid than the David Lynch films. So I'm really looking forward to watching them again and having a fresh look at them. Uh, there are a bunch of the actors I like in that one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm looking forward to that. Dune Messiah, I have no clue what to expect. I, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm looking to see uh, – I'm expecting to see Paul – in his journey as Messiah and how that unravels for him. Uh, maybe it doesn't unravel for him, but he goes in a course that no one expects. I'm expecting that. But. How about you, Jim? Yeah, I, I am I also looking forward to seeing if Paul matures as an emperor or if he continues down this path of, of destruction, which will eventually could lead to his own self-destruction. I, I'm i looking forward to seeing that as the growth of the Empire in general and how it changes into this thing that I know from experience of Paul being kind of like not too proud of, uh, even more so than he is in this book. Uh, so that should, be, that should be interesting. I'm also really looking forward to watching the miniseries again. I love the miniseries a lot. Um, I think that it's just like, it's well done. Alec Newman is Paul for me. He always will be. Anytime I see him in something like uh, Star Trek or um, what are some of the other things he was on? He was on Doctor Who and it was, you know, I would just get this like grin on my face. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that uh, once again. So, all right, well, let's uh, let's wrap things up. I think we ran a little bit over this time, but uh, not too bad, though. Not too bad. too bad. Yeah, we did all right. And uh, 
Well, don't forget that we've got the uh, listener feedback show coming up. And we have our interview, if you're in the chat room, that we have our interview with Brian Herbert. Yeah. So there's a lot more to come this month and if you're with us live this evening. Yeah, this evening, definitely. So. And uh, we'll be probably taking just a short break between shows here, but stick with us. We'll be back. Yep. Uh, so just in case you want to get in touch with us with your feedback on Paul of Dune or the Dune miniseries uh, for next month's episodes... Uh, do go ahead and send us your thoughts via email at dunesagapodcast at gmail.com or call our voicemail at 126-0577-CHAT. That's 2428. Uh, and you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash dunesagapodcast, as well as on Twitter at, at dunesagapodcast. Right, right, definitely. So you can join up with our conversations there. And don't forget, we have the app, Zog Pod Collective, that you can download for free and interact with us right there. Yeah, it's a great way. It's an easy way to call in, too. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, once again, for the Dunesaga Podcast, I'm David Moulton. I'm Scott Herzog. And I'm Jim Arrowwood. And may Shai Halud clear the path before you. <laughs>